Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute. You can find all our podcasts at radio.acton.org. That's the link to our archive. Remember that one, bookmark it, spread it around for us. My name is Mark Vandermoss, your host. So glad to have you along today on the podcast, and I want to open up today with a very simple, well, a seemingly simple question, and that is this. Do you feel special? Everybody, you know, taken aback, thinking, well, yeah, I guess so. You know, my parents, my parents think I'm special. My mom thinks I'm special. Yeah, I'm special. Great. You know, that, that's, that's a wonderful thing, too. You know, having a good family and parents who love you and care about you and think that you're, a, you're the greatest kid in the world because you're their kid and you're special, that's, that's a wonderful thing. And if you had parents who didn't think you were special, if your mom didn't particularly like you, you, you have my sympathy. And hopefully there are counseling options available to you to get over that childhood trauma and, and, and all of that. Uh, but, but seriously, seriously, though. The question of our human special is a vitally important question because how you answer that question is going to have a lot to do with how you view other people, how you view yourself, what kind of a society you end up building. It's all going to flow essentially from your view of the human person. Now, in Christian societies or in societies that have been traditionally undergirded by Judeo-Christian thought, the answer to that question has been relatively simple, and it's been, uh, yes, hasn't always been applied evenly, but fundamentally the answer is, yes, human beings are special. Why? Because human beings are created in the image of God. They are image bearers of God. And therefore, due to that fact alone, they have inherent dignity, and they deserve respect, and there are rights that adhere to them from the very beginning, even before government uh, or political institutions exist, human beings have these rights. And so the American Founding Fathers, for instance, recognized this and incorporated that sort of thinking into the founding documents. Thomas Jefferson uh, talked about how we are all endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. The idea being that the government, in order to be legitimate, must recognize and respect those rights. And, and that was one of the, 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 the major points of view that undergirded the Founding Fathers' work in creating and crafting those founding documents of this country, the United States. Well, increasingly today, in the modern world, we have a lot of people saying, answering that question in the negative. You know, are human beings special? No. No, human beings are just another animal. Or even worse, people are saying, not only are human beings not special, human beings are dangerous. Human beings are uh, destroying the planet, and the population of human beings need to be, needs to be thinned, essentially, uh, in order to respect the quote-unquote rights of the, of the natural world. Well, one of the leading chroniclers of this sort of thinking, and one of the leading uh, advocates responding to these sorts of uh, arguments, is Wesley J. Smith. He is a blogger at nationalreview.com. His blog is called Human Exceptionalism. He's uh, also with the Discovery Institute, and almost daily he writes about these issues and responds to these arguments that threaten human dignity and threaten human rights. My new colleague, Paul Edwards, who, by the way, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to have on board here as part of the Radio Free Acton team, He's going to spend some time talking today with Wesley J. Smith about these very topics, the threats to human rights that exist, and the ramifications of this type of thought.
Thank you, Mark Vandermoss. The Acton Institute uh, has been around for about 24 years, and uh, it's it really has one mission, and that is to integrate Judeo-Christian truths with free market principles. Now, that mission is built upon 10 different core principles. We don't have the time to get in, into that uh, on today's podcast, but you can go to radio.acton.org, click the About section, and you'll find our 10 core principles, the first of which is dignity of the human person. Here at the Acton Institute, we believe that the key, the foundation to human flourishing, to economic freedom, is understanding that the human person is unique, created in the image of God, rational, the subject of moral agency, and really a co-creator along with God in the culture. Now, there are attacks on this view from a lot of perspectives, from a lot of different uh, places. But uh, the Discovery Institute, uh, under the direction of Wesley J. Smith and his Human Exceptionalism blog and his new book and work documentary, War on Humans, uh, is really helping us pinpoint one of the key and major sources of the attack on the dignity of the human person. In his uh, new book, The War on Humans, uh, in one chapter he says, when anti-humanism overflows the dikes of human exceptionalism, it could bring a flood of woe threatening Western concepts of liberty and our material prosperity. Wesley J. Smith is uh, a lawyer. He's an award-winning author and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. Joining us from the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area is Wesley J. Smith. Talk about the, the, what precipitated this particular work of yours. I know that you've, you've done a lot of work in a lot of other areas but now you are really focusing uh, our attention on what I think is a, a critical attack on human dignity, human exceptionalism. Where is it coming from? Well, you know, thank you very much. I, I started in this kind of human dignity work in fighting euthanasia and assisted suicide, and that was back in 1993. And boy, once you dig into these fields, it's amazing how much more you find is going on in the society. And as I was starting to do that work, I noticed what was happening in bioethics, the idea that we should not treat in medical policy and in medical ethics, we should not treat each and every human being as having equal moral dignity or uh, value, that rather we should uh, create what's called a quality of life ethic where some people are deemed to have greater value than others, and even some people are deemed to be less than human, the idea that they're not persons. And so you see tremendous advocacy in bioethics. It's not happening yet, but I'm really worried about it, for uh, killing people like Terry Schiavo for their organs by redefining them as dead. Um, then uh, that kind of led me to see what was going on with this whole stem cell issue and, and, uh, and also the animal rights issue. In animal rights, uh, Human beings are, are said not to have higher moral value than animals, but equal moral value to animals based on the idea that what gives moral value is the ability to feel pain. And thus, since a cow can feel pain and a human can feel pain, uh, cows and humans are equal, therefore cattle ranching is akin to slavery. Uh, and, of course, we have to distinguish animal rights from animal welfare. And that got me to thinking that there's even, uh, and the subject of the current work, there's, a, there's a, a movement that's actually worse than that. Rather than saying human beings and animals are equals, in many ways they're saying that human beings are actually the enemies. 
Mm-hmm. We are the, the villains. We are viruses. We are parasites. And this is the environmental movement. Um, environmentalism wasn't always like that. Environmentalism has done a lot of good, but in the last 15 or 20 years, it has become filled with misanthropy. It has become anti-human. Uh, it describes us as the virus of the planet, and it proposes policies that are also anti-human in that it would materially reduce our prosperity in the developed world and would force the developing world to remain mired in destitution. That's not compassion, and I really appreciate the opportunity to get into some of those details. You know, when when I was growing up, I, I was born in 1961, so I've just given everybody my age, but I remember on my black-and-white television in my parents' living room watching that Native Americans stand on a hillside and look at all the garbage that uh, that we non-Native Americans, by comparison, had left. And it was a you know it was an environmental ad: clean up after yourself, don't litter, don't pollute, and that sort of thing. All of that seemed quite benign. Has the environmental movement moved away from what would be you know acceptable to rational people that yeah I ought to take care of? Uh, of the planet, I ought to clean up after myself. Where where has environmental uh, environmentalism and the environmental movement moved to from there? Well, it's become to the point where it is promoting something. Just as one example, called nature rights. Let me let me uh, and this of course denigrates the value of human life. Uh, let me quote what nature rights are. Nature or Pacamama, by the way, Pacamama is an Incan earth goddess, so to some degree this becomes a neo-earth religion. Nature or Pacamama, where life is reproduced and exists, has the right to exist, persist, maintain, and regenerate its vital cycles and its processes and evolution. That's a neo-right, that's a quasi-right to life for nature. And the idea behind nature rights is that humans and nature have to come to the table having the right to equal consideration so that if human beings wish to do something that interferes with the natural world, that has to be, there has to be a, a process to determine whether nature's rights are being interfered with. And that often would lead, according to this idea, to court cases where anybody who believes, and that's what these nature rights laws do, anybody who believes that nature's rights are being interfered with has a right to bring a lawsuit. And when you think about the hundreds of millions of dollars these radical environmental groups have, you can see how they would use nature rights to literally grind human prosperity, human economic development, the extraction of resources to a halt. Now, some people say, well, that'll never happen here. Well, it's already happening here. Nature rights is the law of Ecuador and Bolivia. Well, some might say, oh, well, those are just small South American countries, so what? Nature rights is also the law of 30 American municipalities, including Pittsburgh and Santa Monica. I grew up in Los Angeles, Paul. I know Santa Monica like the back of my hand. There's no nature left in Santa Monica. The reason they have inculcated a nature rights law in Santa Monica is an ideological statement, a statement that human beings do not have greater value than the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees, in essence that we are another animal in the forest. And my problem with that is if that's how we define ourselves, that's exactly how we'll act. Nature rights has also been supported by the Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, and it is uh, proposed for inclusion in an ultimate uh, United Nations treaty to fight global warming. So this new approach, 
not that it's a, it's you know we we have an obligation which of course as we do as human beings and simply because we're human by the way to be responsible in our application of uh of technology and industrialization that we have a duty to be responsible in our environmental practices no this is a new thing that says nature has a right vis-a-vis against us and and that is a a completely different uh, approach that i think is destructive to human thriving wesley j smith our guest here on radio free acton senior fellow at the discovery institute center on human exceptionalism and we're talking with Wesley about uh, their new project out there at the Discovery Institute, the War on Humans. WarOnHumans.com is where you can learn more about the documentary and the ebook. WarOnHumans.com, and we point you to that and hope that you'll take a look there. When we talk about nature rights, what what, what these radical environmentalists are after really is to be declared. Um, the, the the representatives I would assume in courts of law in terms of the of the standing of animals and other parts to trees even uh, uh, other parts of nature in order to bring lawsuits on behalf of say for instance a tree or a wetland exactly and it boggles the mind doesn't it uh, in animal rights there's a, a a concomitant kind of approach it's called animal standing where animal rights activists, and again we have to distinguish this from animal welfare, but animal rights activists are seeking to be able to have animals bring lawsuits in their own name. You've already seen lawsuits uh, supposedly by the orcas of SeaWorld against SeaWorld, uh, which was thrown out of court, uh, which sought to, by the way, declare these, these killer whales to be slaves. This was brought by the people for the ethical treatment of animals. It was thrown out of court, and the interesting reason why it was thrown out of court is the federal judge looked at the law of slavery back when we had legal slavery in this country and found that it was the ownership of one person by another person. That's how it was defined. And the judge said, well, since whales are not persons, they can't be slaves. Well, the Non-Human Rights Project, and I hope your listeners will uh, go on Google and find it, is actually seeking to, and is already filing lawsuits to have just one judge. That's all it takes. And we know in this country that's not that hard to find. One judge declare one animal a person entitled to at least one right. And once that happens, as they put it, the species barrier will shatter. And all of this kind of very radical animal rights, nature rights stuff could pour through that breach. Uh, lawsuits were already filed in New York State by uh, supposedly chimpanzees that were held captive, seeking writs of habeas corpus. Three different judges looked at them. Two of them took the case very seriously. Two of the, one of them even expressed a, a, a semi-desire to rule in favor, but decided not to do it. But this is going to be filed again and again and again, these kinds of suits to declare an animal a person uh, until they find a judge that actually will go along. And that will, of course, make huge news in the media. And, and a lot of the point of this is to get particularly the young, if I might point out, to change their thinking about themselves, to deny that they have unique value uh, and that human beings are exceptional, to accept the idea that we're just part of nature, that we're just another animal. And that will change the way they not only relate to the natural world but to ourselves and to each other. And it's very frightening. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, just to give you an example, 
of what I'm talking about. They had a what's called the Holocaust on Your Plate campaign for many years, and this is, again, aimed at young people. And the Holocaust on Your Plate campaign tried to make an explicit and did make it, not tried to, did make an explicit comparison between animals, eating animals, and the Holocaust and Auschwitz. Mm. Uh, they even said explicitly that the uh, the lampshade made from human skin was the same thing morally as having a leather couch or wearing leather shoes. Meanwhile, in the nature rights issue, particularly around global warming, which is as mainstream an environmental issue as you get, and you see a lot of this idea of anti-humanism. Uh, uh, Sir David Attenborough, this is the fellow who's done all of the uh, nature uh, documentaries, has called human beings a plague on the earth. He has extolled the one China, the China one child policy, even though it involves forced abortion and female infanticide. Uh, there have been ads in support of global warming aimed at children that convince them that they are uh, a terrible abusers of the earth because they use resources. One of them, and, and one of the, the Paul, the good things about an ebook. This is the first ebook I've written. Normally, I've written hardcover books, but ebooks allow you to link specifically to what you're talking about so that the reader doesn't just have to listen to you or read your description. They can actually go to the very thing that you're writing about, right? Mm. And one of the uh, ads I write about in favor of uh, fighting global warming is from the 1010 campaign, which seeks to convince people to reduce their carbon output by 10%. And it's called the No Pressure ad. And it shows an elementary school teacher, and this is from the U.K., it shows an elementary school teacher talking about this campaign to the kids, and she asks, how many of you are going to participate? And most, most of the kids raise their hands, and she says, oh, that's just wonderful. How many of you are not? And two kids kind of raise their hands, and they say, oh, well, we're not really quite into this. And she says, oh, no problem, no pressure. She pushes a button, and, Paul, these kids explode in a graphic way that looks so realistic you'd think it was from a feature film or even a, a, a documentary of of some kind of a, a, a you know a suicide bomber, the message sent is if you don't agree to fight global warming, you deserve to die. Mm. To children, and there's another ad called uh, that was actually a game called Professor Spinky's Greenhouse Calculator. This was on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's website. It's gone now, but it was on for several years, and it told children because it used a pig as the icon, and children were supposed to calculate how, when they should die because they've used up their own share of resources. And when they reached the, the time age where they've used up their share of resources, this cartoon pig explodes. So they're teaching kids they're pigs. I took the test, and I should have died at 7.4 years. <laughs> so you've got this idea of the Earth is a living entity, that human beings are the plague on the planet, that children should be taught that they should feel guilty if they have a decent lifestyle. And meanwhile, when uh, places like sub-Saharan Africa are living in destitution, these policies would force them to be mired in destitution. And the answer is to supposedly, and you've seen this in the proposal for the global warming uh, uh, treaty, transfer hundreds of billions of dollars from the developed world to the undeveloped world or the developing world so that they won't electrify the continent, so they won't industrialize, so they won't uh, be able to grow into the kind of prosperity we enjoy. In essence, make them a, a permanent dependency, which would be harmful not only to the cultures, 
but keep these poor people mired in the kind of misery they live in now, and 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 that's in the name of saving the earth. It's really awful. And in your book, you point out that some of these, some branches of, and I I, I start to say radical environmentalism, but it's almost like talking about radical Islam. It seems like what used to be radical has become mainstream. Some of these are these environmental advocates are also advocating reducing human population by upwards of 90 percent. Yes, this is the deep ecology movement, which was originally, back in the early 70s, a radical kind of fringe idea, while mainstream environmentalism, uh, you know, uh, helped clean up uh, rivers and and restore fisheries and protected uh, natural beauty and protected endangered species and so forth. But over the last uh, 15 or 20 years, that idea of the and also Gaia theory, where Earth was looked at as a living entity, these kind of very radical ideas of of saving the Earth by reducing the plague of human population has moved from that fringe, kind of like a cancer chewing from the outside into the into the center. It has now become a, a if not it has not totally taken over environmentalism, but it is respectable and it is part of the environmental pitch. Uh, Sir David Attenborough, again, you can't get more establishment than that. He is part of a human population reduction organization that seeks to reduce human population by not 90%, but a smaller amount. But again, if you look at the one-China policy, one-child policy in China, which, again, the the tyranny, the forced uh, abortion, the eugenics, the female infanticide, that has not reduced the number of Chinese people. It has merely slowed the rate of growth. So if you're actually going to try to reduce the fat, the numbers of people in a very, even a minimal way, it's going to take a tremendous amount of, of authoritarianism and tyranny that, that is very frightening. Now, Sir David Attenborough would not support that kind of thing, but he's not going to get from where we are to where he wants to be without it because the idea of increasing the use of birth, voluntary birth control isn't going to cut it. That's not going to reduce the numbers. And and you see a deep nihilism and a deep uh, darkness descending on this, this uh, movement. And again, anytime you decide that human beings are the scourge, it's not healthy. You write in your book, anti-humanism and self-loathing have corrupted the noble goal of promoting environmentally responsible practices to the point that we may sacrifice our own thriving on the altar of, quote-unquote, saving the planet. What are the implications, Wesley Smith, for the impact of these environmental policies if, if, they, if they saw the light of day and began, began to be public policy? What are the implications for human flourishing in terms of capitalism, free markets, poverty reduction, bringing people who are in poverty uh, up out of third world desperation. What, what, what are the practical impacts of, of, uh, of, of what would happen if we saw these things become public policy? And there's a slight false premise to your question, not if they see the light of day. They are seeing the light of day now. This is not an alarmist projection into the future. It's describing facts on the ground. Mm. Let me just give you one example. The top, pro- probably the prime target, at least of North American environmentalists, is the Alberta tar sands oil shale extraction, where you see tremendous potential 
to uh, to alleviate the energy shortage to to get us off dependency on the Middle East and so forth. We've seen that the pipeline that would bring that oil from uh, Canada into the United States has been thwarted for how many years now? There's a there's a movement afoot called Ecoside that seeks to criminalize uh, and make a felony, and they call it a kin, the fifth crime against peace, meaning akin to genocide. They they seek to criminalize uh, resource extraction and large scale uh, development of the land. They've already held a mock trial in the English Supreme Court that shows you this is not just some little thing in a corner, right? In the English Supreme Court, they held an, a mock ecocide trial and found two fictional CEOs guilty of, of the crime against peace, which is akin to genocide, and you know what their crime was? Working the Alberta tar sands. Mm. Now, if we cannot extract minerals and oil and energy fracking is another target uh, fracturing uh, to get the natural gas and so forth if we can't extract that from the ground if we can't uh, harvest timber if we can't uh, plow fields where are we going to where are we going to have any kind of economic then any economic growth and you see in the global warming fight actual advocacy for shrinking the economy for preventing growth in the economy you think today's economy is bad? Imagine if you you took today's economy and the, the stagnation we're experiencing and shrink it even further. Why, we'll end up in a situation where where uh, people become desperate and, and that opens the door not only to uh, radical kind of anti-free market uh, practices <laughs> by people who are causing the problem because they're thwarting the free market, but also a loss of liberty. And uh, again, what you see a lot of environmentalists looking. Thomas Friedman, as an example, the New York Times columnist, he looked at China and said, gee, look at them. They're able to make these changes in environmental policy on a dime. They don't have to deal with the messiness of democracy. Well, talk about a potential threat to freedom. If you look to the tyranny that is the People's Republic of China as some kind of model for, econ for economic and or environmental uh, practices, you're out of your mind. Right. This is a tyranny. Ab absolutely a tyranny, no question about it. What, what, what is the... What is the CEO sitting in his office listening to us to do? I mean, what what are the what are the call to action points that you would say to a, to a business owner, uh, a chief executive officer, a chief operating officer in a business in terms of responding to this war on humans and the potential adverse effects that it's going to have on the economy? I'll tell you what I think the the worst enemy. An enemy is not the right term, but the the biggest impediment. That's a better way to phrase it to actually pushing back against these environmental extremists who have taken over the mainstream of environmentalism or are taking over it and are seeking to thwart, I call it a brown movement, because you, when you mix red with green, you get brown. Mm. Uh, they've, they've, they've interposed an, uh, an unnecessary anti-free market, anti-capitalistic meme uh, into the green movement, into environmentalism. That's very harmful. But the biggest impediment to fighting it is complacency. It is the idea when you, and I've given speeches on this, I'll say, do you realize that there are nations and cities passing laws that give rights to nature? Do you realize, and this is another thing, New Zealand has declared a river to be a person 
New Zealand passed a law declaring a river to be a person as an integrated living whole, possessing, quotes, rights and interests. You know, we were able to protect Yellowstone all these years, and we didn't turn old faithful geyser into a person. But, but I tell people this, and I watch them. Their eyes roll up in their head, and they say, oh, oh what will they think of next? Isn't this just funny? It'll never happen here. It is happening here. It is happening now. It is the, the ideology of the ruling class to an increasing degree. It is what your kids are being taught in the universities. I hope your listeners will, will go and ask their high school kids and even elementary school kids, what are you being taught about human life? Does it have greater value? What are you being taught about the environment? Are you being taught that we're killing the earth? This kind of thing. And when you say, oh, it can't happen here, Nobody is coming to the defense of human exceptionalism, of human uh, value, and of, of, uh, of, of a, a responsible free market system. And that's why all these inroads happen, because people who should be getting onto the walls to beat back the orcs, if you will, aren't there because they don't think the orcs are, are, are attacking the walls, but they are. So the first thing I would say is I hope that uh, the work the Discovery Institute and I are doing on human exceptionalism the ebook, which is in Kindle and Nook, it's only $1.99. We're not trying to make money off this. We're trying to educate people. We have a War on Humans documentary that's available for free on YouTube, uh, waronhumans.com. Show this to people. Read it. Read the books if you, if you want to. Look at the documentary. It's only 30 minutes. See what is actually coming. This is real. And if people tell their friends and, and, and their, the people they go to church with and their fellow workers, then you can begin to say, no, we're not going to accept this kind of thing. No, we're not going to, because we still live in a free society. And we can end up in a situation where the people who represent us in office aren't anti-human, even if it's only implicitly anti-human, but stand up for proper environmental practices, but not the thwarting of human thriving. We here at the Acton Institute commend uh, waronhumans.com to you. You can go there, and uh, all of the resources that uh, Wesley Smith has just uh, referred to are linked there at waronhumans.com. Uh, I especially would encourage business leaders, thought leaders, influencers to, uh, to get up to speed on what is happening. This is not a benign movement, the environmental movement. It will have uh, an adverse effect on uh, your, your, uh, your business's ability to make a profit uh, and to thrive, and uh, on your family's ability to thrive. So go to waronhumans.com, download the ebook, look at the documentary. Wesley Smith is Senior Fellow at uh, the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. You might also want to check out his blog, Human Exceptionalism. It's, it's at uh, National Review Online, also linked there at waronhumans.com. Wesley, it is always a joy to uh, talk to you. Always appreciate your insight on these, these critical issues. Paul, thank you very much. I appreciate the attention you're giving to this work. And we throw it back to Mark Vandermoss, our host here on Radio Free Acton. Thank you, Paul, and a big thank you to Wesley J. Smith for joining us today. Once again, the links to remember are waronhumans.com. That's where you can find out information on Wesley's documentary, a little bit of information about him as well. You can watch the documentary there. Pass that link around to your family and friends to get them up to speed on what's going on in these uh, vital areas of human rights and human dignity. And then bookmark Wesley's blog at nationalreview.com. Look for the Human Exceptionalism blog and keep up to speed on these issues because there are going to be more and more challenges coming to human rights and human dignity uh, as time goes on. And Wesley does a great job 
of chronicling them and responding to those challenges right there. A couple of events coming up at the Acton Institute that I want to let you know about before we wrap up the podcast. The Acton Lecture Series continues this year right here at the Acton Building in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the beautiful Mark Murray Auditorium. We're very pleased to have that facility uh, available to us now, and we are putting it to good use, bringing in some great speakers. On March 13th at noon, uh, Lawrence Reed, president of the Foundation for Economic Education and formerly president of the Mackinac Center right here uh, in Michigan, the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. He was the founder of that uh, institution and, and led it wonderfully for, for a number of years and now with the Foundation for Economic Education. Lawrence Reed is going to be coming into town to talk to us about the American Presidents. The title of his lecture, The American Presidents, The Best and the Worst. Uh, should be a fantastic lecture. Always interesting to hear uh, from uh, Lawrence Reed and it's always a great interactive experience with him. He's, he's great with Q&A as well. Uh, don't miss that one. And then uh, April 23rd, a vitally important topic uh, addressed by Chip Malore, who is the president and general counsel of the Institute for Justice. He will be coming to Grand Rapids to the Mark Murray Auditorium to talk about judicial engagement and the Constitution, how liberty can survive the onslaught of government. In an era of uh, growing government budgets, unrestrained growth almost, uh, and a massive debt, uh, in an era of judicial activism and uh, restrictions on liberty, how can liberty survive? Chip Malore is going to talk to us about that topic, and it's going to be something you don't want to miss right here at the Acton Institute. The way to check out more information on these lectures and to register to attend is to go to actonlectureseries.com. That's actonlectureseries.com. Once again, I want to thank you all for joining us. I want to thank Paul Edwards, Wesley J. Smith, for being part of the podcast today, and I want to thank you for listening to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute. Find out more at radio.acton.org. Thanks, everybody.